From Boldface, this is Fear of Missing Out. Young people living in the UK talking about the stuff we wish we learned in school. In each episode, a new presenter goes on a personal journey through the bits of British history that people aren't talking about enough. I'm Halima. Just a heads up, this documentary deals with racism and police violence. What are we doing right now? We are walking to the, a protest, and this protest is for a child queue. This is me and my producer, Jesse on the way to a protest against the treatment of child queue at Stoke Newington Police Station in Hackney. In March 2022, a report came out about a secondary school student from Hackney, London, referred to as Child Q. The details of this case have only come to light because a review was launched into the way that this teenage girl was treated. In 2020, when Child Q was 15, her teachers said that they smelt cannabis on her and then called the police. The police came into Child Q's school and strip-searched her while she was on her period. Not that it would have mattered either way, but cannabis was not found. Thinking of what that must have been like makes me physically hurt for her. I'm so sad and so angry. Oh, I can already see people like, yeah, people are already going into the road. There's already like a, like a, there's an energy in the air. I moved to England from Ireland when I was 14. Hearing about Child Q felt like a breaking point for my own resilience to racism in the UK. Black people here are made to feel criminal in so many ways, even when we're children. I want to look into the history of the criminalization of black communities in the UK, which for me and Child Q started at school. To me, I was just trying to live my life peacefully. And every time I breathed, mm. an adult had a problem. <laughs> <laughs> my name is Sefia Jabril. I'm 20 years old. I'm a speech and language therapy student at the University of East Anglia. And I'm Halima's sister. Do you think that we were treated differently in school? Yeah, definitely. Like 100%. We, like, we went to like predominantly white schools. <laughs> Literally, a teacher used to call me urban, as if I wasn't from rural Ireland. <laughs> Something happened to my sister when she was in year 13 that really affected our family. Hearing about what happened to Child Q brought this up again for both of us. I was performing in the school production. Well, I think it was our dress rehearsal. And I didn't know where my phone was, but we had left our bags in the audience area and we weren't allowed to go in that section because we were meant to have like a really realistic rehearsal. So we can't go into the audience because if it was the real thing, we wouldn't be allowed to go into the audience, would we? But I said to my teacher that I needed to find my phone because like, I didn't want to be stressing that I didn't know where my phone was. And then I have to tell my parents, who get, my strict parents, who bought me a phone for Christmas, that I've lost the phone. To some people, that doesn't sound like that dramatic. But if you have strict immigrant parents, you will understand that if they buy you an electronic and you lose it, oh my God, the hell that will rain down upon you. <laughs> 
I'm very anxious. I have like, I have anxiety. And I just needed to look in my bag to make sure that it was in there. So Sefi asked the teacher if she could go and check that her phone was in her bag. And she would not let me in there. And I was like, please, I just need to look in my bag. And she just kept telling me no, kept telling me no. And I started to get really, really anxious. I started hyperventilating. I had a panic attack in front of this woman. And then I just went to my bag because I was like freaking out. I had braids, so my hair was down. And I flicked my head forward and like to look down into my bag and my braids hit her. And she told the teachers that I had hit her with my braids on purpose because I was angry at her, even though I was literally crying and hyperventilating, scouring my bag for my phone. Some other really scary stuff happened. More teachers were brought in and treated my sister like she was a violent person, rather than a student having a panic attack. A few days later, after the play had finished, the school told Sefia that she had been excluded for assaulting a teacher. I was just in disbelief and I just started sobbing. I called you because I was like, I, I, I don't know how to tell, I don't know how to tell our mom who I was scared that I lost my phone, but now I'm excluded. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm not gonna tell her. I'm gonna tell her not. I had to break it down to to mommy to be like, okay, so he was excluded, and this is not a thing that you have to see her and be like, twist of your axe this way, twist of your axe this way. No. This particular school that we go to have no respect for Sefia as a student. I feel like getting emotional right now because it was such an awful experience. Sorry. No, bro. Because it was actually deep. <laughs> Sorry. It was actually deep. It was so deep. awful. And it was so unfair. Like... And it's the thing that's so sad is that you have to tell black students that they need to make themselves smaller so schools don't target them, which is ridiculous because you tell white students to put yourself out there, but then you just teach black students to minimize themselves till they become so small that then they like, they go into higher education and they don't know how to be big anymore, which was like, that's what exactly what happened to me. Like... Oh, damn, Halima. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, like, literally it is, like, after just being told that, like, your, like, your voice, like, people don't want to hear your voice or your opinion or, like, what you want to, like, what you have to say because, like, they perceive you to be a certain way. That was always what happened. Like, there was never someone to tell me that, like, wow, that was phenomenal. Like, you've done mm -hmm. brilliantly. You should be so incredibly proud of yourself. And then that's it. The way schools are meant to form you positively, black students don't get that. Like, the, you don't. School is like, it means if you're crying about it. School is so traumatic. Even thinking back yeah. to it, I didn't even think it was that traumatic, but it genuinely is. My sister and I weren't surprised when we heard about Child Q, which in itself sucks. When you're so used to being treated as suspect, as potentially violent or criminal by white people in all aspects of your life, even your teachers who you're meant to trust, it's not that surprising when you hear that the actual police were called into a school and treated a black student so terribly. Hey. 
when you first heard about Child Q, what was your initial reaction? I know how it feels to be mistreated by police because I have been a victim of it before, so. My husband was here in the 1960s and there's a lot of police brutality. So this is not an isolated event. This has been happening for years and something needs to be done. Many people have died, like Mark Duggan and all sorts of people have died um, because of police brutality. My parents came over from Barbados. Um, I was born here of Barbadian parents. And the things they talk about then, it's still the same now, and it is distressing, it is so distressing. They see us as lesser, they see us as not human, it is, it is beyond distressing. How have we ended up in a situation where black people expect to be mistreated by the police. But the police are, for the most part, an accepted and unquestioned part of the fabric of society. And when did the police even become a thing? The Metropolitan Police Act was the first time that a sort of professionalised police force would be established in Britain, and it was for the jurisdiction of London. This is a via day. I'm a lecturer in criminology at Birkbeck. Which is part of the University of London. And I also do a lot of activism around policing and domestic violence particularly. So, cool. yeah. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. <laughs> the Metropolitan Police Force in London was only founded in 1829. It's hard to imagine now. But before that, there wasn't an official state-run police force. There were local initiatives with similarities to policing, but there wasn't a concept of the police as a professional full-time force. What were the conditions that led to the founding of the Met Police in 1829? What was going on before that, like in the 1700s? Mm, Really, really important question. This is when sort of British Empire was starting to really grow and you have cities emerging, getting bigger and lots of people who had been sort of thrown off the land from the countryside emerging in these growing cities and working in sort of factories and working in jobs that this new empire had given rise to. In the mid-1700s, Britain was starting to industrialise, which means moving away from things like farming and individual manual labour and towards factories and mass production. All of this was possible because of the wealth Britain was getting through the slave trade and Britain's colonisation of other places that had resources, land and workers that they could exploit. This is like very, very early, early capitalism. The sort of upper classes are getting a bit richer, but people below are actually not necessarily getting any of the benefits of that. Different classes are rubbing up against each other. And yeah, some people were basically committing more robberies in order to to make the situation where they're in a lot of poverty better. Over the second half of the 1700s, you get different pre-police forces popping up, but none of them really lasted. 
yeah, at that point, the ruling classes and the state were kind of unsure about whether or not a professionalised police force was a good idea and whether or not it would be able to elicit the kind of consent needed from the broader public to get away with that level of control. They didn't really think that people would accept it. There have been a couple of times where protests had happened, the army had been brought in and they had shot and killed people. And let's just say, it didn't make the state look very good. And there was this kind of tricky balance to be had. You know, if we use those weapons and guns and muskets and all of those things against people here, that might actually take away our legitimacy as the government. They didn't want to overdo it and then actually create more revolt in people. During this time, Ireland was a British colony. Britain developed a police force in Ireland to crush Irish resistance to British rule. This police force went on to provide a kind of blueprint for the Metropolitan Police. Often the colonies end up being a testing ground for what politicians and the state feels like they're not really sure if they can get away with it on home ground. Okay, so, 1829. You have larger working class populations in the cities than ever before. Lots of them are unionising and striking, demanding better working conditions. You have rising levels of homelessness. And you have the upper classes and the state making lots of money off slavery and colonised peoples and colonised land and wanting to protect that wealth, but too scared of inciting riots by bringing out the army. This is when the Metropolitan Police was founded. The Metropolitan Police Act, it was brought in by Sir Robert Peel. Who had been Chief Secretary in Ireland from 1812 to 1818. It brought in this kind of more centralised way of disciplining and controlling people. It brought in new powers that the state would have over people. Vagrancy was a massive thing that the police would be given the sort of responsibility to deal with. A big part of their job was to deal with strikes. The police would be brought in to kind of quell that dissent. There are nine principles of policing that are commonly associated with the founding of the Met Police in 1829. That the power of the police to fulfil their functions and duties is dependent on public approval of their existence. A lot of the principles seem to be based around the idea that the police are just normal members of the public. By ready offering individual service and friendship to all members of the public. It's very like, we're all friends, Bobby on the beat kind of thing that gives reality to the historic tradition that the police are the public and that the public are the police. But who was the state thinking about when they spoke about the police serving the public? Who's skilled, relatively stably employed, and probably male as well. Those are the people the state is kind of trying to maintain its legitimacy through them. So if they piss those people off too much then they're going to lose their own legitimacy in order to run the country. Women, you know, people who are really on the poverty line, but also colonised people and slaves are going to be outside of all of that. 
The Slavery Abolition Act didn't happen in Britain until four years after the Met Police was founded. Most of the wealth generated in Britain at the time was off the back of the exploitation of black and indigenous peoples. And women would only start getting the vote just under 100 years later. I'm a black person who grew up in Ireland. I don't think that the state would have considered people like me as part of the public the police were set up to protect back in 1829. This is the foundation the Met Police was built on. Could that be why, almost 200 years later, we still face huge issues with institutional racism in the police? Particularly as a black man, if I challenge the police, they will quickly arrest me. They're not here to protect us, they're here to police us. This is Mark Thompson. He's the director of The Love Tank, a community interest company supporting health and well-being in marginalised communities. So what is your first memory of the police? My earliest memories of the police would be my dad being hauled into police vans and beaten in Brixton in South London in the mid-70s. Hold up. Who, me? Yeah, you. What are you doing? And I was stopped by the police when I was 13, 14, like most young black boys. You ever been in trouble with the police before? No. Are you sure about that? The police were, they've often been described as a great big gang who were put in uniform. And I think I saw that from really early on, that the system was stacked against us, that it was racist, that they were not here for us. Even in the 1980s, 150 years after the Metropolitan Police Act, Mark didn't feel like black people were included in the public that the police were meant to be protecting. It makes you even more frightened in the world. Because I already knew the wider white world, so your shopkeepers, your van drivers, your people in the world, were not there for me. So when when your parents send you, the police aren't there for you either, then you're like, well, oh shit, who is here for me? Until the McPherson report, it's really difficult to challenge the police. Stephen Lawrence inquiry was a watershed moment for the police. Its chair, Sir William McPherson, shocked many by dubbing the Metropolitan... In 1999, the McPherson report officially found the Metropolitan Police to be institutionally racist. For people who haven't heard of it, could you explain the context of the McPherson Report? So Stephen Lawrence, black teenager, murdered in South London in the mid-90s by a bunch of racists. Police investigation was woefully inadequate. The McPherson inquiry was called to look at the police handling of the case, and McPherson found that the police was institutionally racist. It wasn't a few bad apples that the racism was running through the veins of the entire institution. When it came out, the McPherson Report, what did you think about it? Okay, so tell us what we don't know. What are you going to do now? For me, it was like, oh, the sky's blue. Thanks for telling me that. The police in the 70s and 80s and 90s are a product of the system and society that they're from. Right, so these young men and women who were overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly British, had grown up in the 60s and 70s, same age as my parents. They're the children of, you know, Enoch Powell, right? 
Enoch Powell was a politician who made the infamous Rivers of Blood speech to a meeting of the Conservative Political Centre in Birmingham in April 1968. You can find it online. It is very racist. The system that they entered was made up of the same people and the politicians were the same. So the entire system and structure is racist, is anti-black because the society, wider, the media, the education system was racist and anti-people of colour. So this notion that they would enter the police force and suddenly shake off all these shackles is rubbish. The police didn't operate in a vacuum in the 1990s, and they don't today either. The Child Q case is a really good example of this. Her teachers allegedly smelt weed on her. Their first thought was to call the police, who then treated her horrendously. This tracks with the experiences me and my sister had in school too. Black people are so often over-policed by multiple arms of the state. And it starts when we're children. Black children's hairstyles, their use of language, their body language, just their general existence is treated as criminal from the moment they enter the education system. This is Jessica Pereira. I am a researcher at the Institute of Race Relations, which is an anti-racist think tank. But I'm also a PhD candidate at the University of Oxford. My thesis is looking at the history, really, of criminalising black students in the education system. I spoke to Jessica the day the report about Child Q had come out in the press. The incident with Child Q is kind of the zenith, really. It's like the end point of the kind of worst atrocities that the state and the education system, in conjunction with the Metropolitan Police Force, can inflict upon the black community, and in this case, a child. I mean, it's completely abhorrent. I think that the other thing that we forget as well about schools, because it's become so normalised now, particularly in London, is to have police officers stationed in schools. Poorer areas of London, the percentage of police officers in schools actually increases. So the more children you have on free school meals, the more likely you are to have police officers in that school. When you introduce a police officer into a school, you're effectively making that place quite hostile. Black children. They're monitored, they're surveilled, they're policed. That can lead to a lot of feelings of resentment and sometimes, not always, but behavioural problems. And then where that leads to is often sanctions, detentions and exclusions. We fail to sort of realise how you get to those points. It's not, you know, this child just turns up in school and is, you know, is bad, is inherently bad. No, there's, you know, there's a kind of backstory to these things. And it's almost as if, you know, they're not allowed to create a life for themselves. That sort of designation as disruptive, in need of discipline, can start right through from childhood. Avia Day, lecturer in criminology at Birkbeck, University of London. It kind of shows how early criminalisation of young working class people, particularly working class black young people, how early that can start. And then that's used as a pretext, as a sort of reinforcing, sort of self-fulfilling kind of prophecy. And I think you kind of see this in terms of the statistics around 
the levels and, and, and rates at which they face exclusion is extremely high. We know that the exclusion rate for young black people nationally is about five times higher than it is for white children. But also when we look at the data of who goes to uh, the prison archipelago... What is a prison archipelago? The prison archipelago is just a way of talking about the prison state from whether it be youth detention centres to adult prisons. I think it was a report in 2018 by the prison inspectorate that said that 89% of young people that were in the prison archipelago had experienced some sort of exclusion from school. So we can see that there's a clear trajectory between schools and prisons. I remember when we were younger and a man shouted at you in the street that like go back to your own country and you just yelled back at him I am in my own country I was born here yeah <laughs> it was just very obvious that people targeted us differently I'm back talking to my sister Sefia looking back on it I think secondary school and primary school you can really see that teachers themselves acted like police like the way that they try and police the way I don't, have, I don't have to say this, but it's definitely the, like me seeing those patterns of people trying to particularly police black students. Do you know what I mean? I understand what you mean, because there's so many instances. I think maybe I was loud or... No, I'm just black. <laughs> they used to gun for us. I went to a parent teacher's meeting with, with mommy. Well, I think this was maybe when I was in year nine. And he said to me that, like, you have to be careful about the way you act because you're the only black person in this form room. You're one of the only black people in your year. And, like, they'll pick on you and they'll do this stuff to you. And mum was like, that's right, because they will do that to you, Halima. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe people just say that to me. Made, I didn't realise how, like, much I'd squandered my individuality and, like, my personality up until this point. Mm -hmm. And if I think about like the little me who used to rock about in her PE kit and her purple converse and like mm. not take shit from nobody. And then like the kind of shy person I present myself as when I go out into the world now, they're just very much two different people. And it's 100% because of how I was treated at school. For sure. In the same way that I don't think that the British government included black people in their idea of the public when they founded the Met Police. I'm not sure that white people in power ever truly think about people like me when they're making institutional decisions. I spoke to Jessica Pereira about this. I mean, I'm thinking about Child Q and some of the commentary that I was reading yesterday was around white privilege. I think it would be quite hard for a lot of white people to imagine that same ordeal happening to a white child as it happened to a black child. When we're talking about an imagined public or an imagined school population, it's almost as if the imagined school population excludes black children because they are criminalised in a completely different way. They are treated differently by police officers, by teachers, by the education system. And I think that young black people are aware that they are treated different to their peers. For me, and for so many other people, policing in this country doesn't protect us. And I guess what I've realized through making this documentary is that I never really intended to. I've been reading recently about theories of abolition, building a world without police and prisons. 
I'm prioritizing care and accountability over harm and punishment. I'm putting my energy into joining community support networks and spreading the information I'm learning through documentaries like this. And I guess we'll see how it goes. Thank you for listening to Fear of Missing Out. I'm Halima. Fear of Missing Out is a six-part series produced by Jesse Lawson. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Hannah Arden is our assistant producer for this episode, and the executive producer is Steve Erkett. Thank you to Maya Miller-Lewis for the original music to Toby Malamo for our original artwork, and to our historical consultant, Megan McAlone. Thank you to our advisory board, Arlie Adlington, Ellie Robson, Imani Mason-Jordan, Lynette Noor Onek, and Emanuela Quanorte. Our mixing is by Mike Woolley. Fear of Missing Out is a bold-faced production supported by the Audio Content Fund. 